morning, Riverside. Yeah, those in the room, you can say good morning. That's cool. I like it. Uh, our text this morning comes from the Gospel of John. We heard a little bit of it already in the children's moment, but I'm going to read the whole section for us. It comes from John 15, verses 1 through 17. This passage is in the midst of what is known as Jesus' great high priestly prayer for uh, his followers as he prepares to go to the cross. So beginning in verse 1, I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now, Remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this. Love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends for everything that I learned from my father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you. And appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. And so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. This is my command. Love each other. Please join me in a word of prayer. Bless us this day, O Lord, with vision. May this place be a sacred place, a telling space, where heaven and earth meet. Amen. Well, this morning begins a four-part series on the new mission and vision statement for Riverside Covenant Church. As happens from time to time, uh, life interrupts, or at least life perhaps comments. As Mike mentioned, as we're all aware, this week was... Uh, a week that we will never forget in this country. And so it 
is important for us to stop and to acknowledge that. And I think it has some things uh, that we would do well to pay attention to as we consider what it means for us to be the church. So as we begin this series, this message takes on a little bit of a different angle than initially it was planned to do, but I think it's important. The great organizational consultant Peter Drucker said that culture eats strategy for breakfast. Culture eats strategy for breakfast. And so it strikes me that it would be foolish for us to talk about mission and vision for a local congregation if we don't pay attention to the culture that we are a part of. And for us, our culture is not only the wider American scene, but the American church. Because if we were to simply charge on and talk about our mission and vision and not pay attention to the culture that surrounds us, as Mr. Drucker says, that strategy would be eaten for breakfast by the wider culture. We have to pay attention to where it is that we are uh, existing, what it is that we're operating. In fact, the text that we talked about or that we just read makes that point over and over again. The word that you hear over and over again, or one of the words you hear over and over again in that text is remain in me. And so we have to pay attention to what it is that is surrounding us. Another way to think about this would be to ask these two questions. What captivates our imagination, or what we think about, or how we think about things? And what, our, what are our motivating stories? These two things make up part of what our culture is around us. The answers to these questions begin to form culture. And before we can talk about mission and vision, we better be aware of our culture or where we exist. And so I got to thinking, well, what is in the context of this week especially, but even broader than that, what is the culture of the American church? And there's a lot of different answers to that. But the verse that popped to mind is instructive, I think, because I, as after 25 years, plus years as a pastor, it's the verse that usually when people talk about what they want the church to be, um, this is almost always one of the top three. And it comes to us from Acts 2. And it starts in verse 42. And it says, actually, the verse that everybody loves is the verse that comes right before that, 41. It's the verse that says, those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. And then he goes on to say, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. We love that part about adding numbers. But there are other parts that we maybe don't pay quite so much attention to. For instance, if you go back just one more verse than where we started in 41. It says that 
uh, with many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Now, brothers and sisters, I think we have in our head who that corrupt generation is. The problem is, is that we hear that and we think, well, it's not us. But in the spirit of John 15 and the idea of pruning, I think it's important for us to consider the fact that perhaps the corrupt generation is us. Perhaps part of how we are church is corrupt. And let me tell you what I mean by that. If we think about what our motivating story or narrative in the American church is, I would say that in my experience, that's a complex answer, and there are a lot of different variables, and there's a lot of different verses and things that we would talk about, and that's all true. But it is clear to me that we as a church, and I'm not just speaking of Riverside here, I'm talking about the American church at large, we as a church are heavily invested in some things while ignoring others. There are certain things that we hear in the story that we love to talk about. There are others that we kind of would prefer to not think about. So, for instance, in the Acts text that we just read, we love to talk about people getting saved and adding to our numbers daily. And wouldn't it be great if 3,000 people joined our church? The logistical uh, details are a nightmare to me. But nevertheless, that's a narrative that we have. Right? We want to grow. We want to be a part of a prevailing church. That's a word a lot of pastors use, a prevailing church. All of these different things. And those are all good things. Except that uh, because we invest so heavily in that narrative, we begin to worship at the idols of influence, size, popularity. And the way that looks and shows up is in a number of different ways. But, um, you know, we... we in the last 40 years have spent an enormous amount of energy on what we call the culture wars. And we love to lament and lambast the broken world around us, the left, the, the Marxists, the socialists, the hedonists, the whateverists, on and on. Because it allows us to never look on ourselves and see that our own church culture is part of that corrupt generation, that we have things, brothers and sisters, that we need. That we need to repent of. A cursory reading of the headlines in the news. When you look at stories about the church, you'll see things like, um, you know, the, the mess that's happening with Hillsong Church around the world right now and, and their very famous celebrity pastor and his foibles. You can read about the uh, foibles of Jerry Falwell Jr. in Liberty University. You can read about uh, the horrific things that we're learning about Rabbi Zacharias and uh, things that took place while he was alive. And part of the reason I hold those things up is not to excoriate or to 
point fingers at those individual men, but to point fingers at the place and the idolatry that we have for influence and size. Because the reason that these men have oversized influence is because we love to worship at the altar of popularity and influence. We want our churches to be big. And perhaps we're not so worried about whether or not they're faithful. We place these idols in the center and we demand that our pastors and preachers only talk about the parts of the gospel that confirm our comfort or our biases. And then we act surprised when these types of truths come out. We read this text this morning from John 15 where Jesus talks about the vine and the branches and we love to talk about fruit. But we don't like to think about our own fruit. And brothers and sisters, the uncomfortable but the necessary truth that we must face is at least in very large part what happened in Washington, D.C. and Wednesday lies at the feet of the church and our desire and our uh, idolatry and giving in to Christian nationalism, which is an oxymoron. Christian nationalism. There is no nationalism in the kingdom of God. There is one kingdom, and it has no flag but Christ. But I don't want, <clears throat> excuse me, I don't want this to be lost. And I know that for some people, whenever these topics come up, they immediately shut down. But the question that the text asks of us, if we read it carefully, is to look at what is the fruit that we are producing. And if the fruit that we are producing is not the fruit of Jesus, then, it, then we're not remaining in him. What we need is more Jesus. 
but not just, but not the Jesus who simply confirms. What we need is more Jesus, but not the Jesus who simply confirms our bias, but the Jesus who destroys it. As we think about this text and this teaching of Jesus, Jesus comes and he gives this beautiful image of I am the vine and you are the branches. Remain in me. Now, there's a couple of things that are important about this, and, and I want us to, to really get a grip on this. One of, some scholars suggest, and I think this is probably correct, that Jesus gave this teaching in the temple uh, courts. Because in the time of Jesus, over the entrance to the temple in Jerusalem, hung a great golden vine. Josephus, the Roman historian, described it like this. The gate opening into the building was as I said, completely overlaid with gold, as was the whole wall around it. It had, moreover, above it the, those golden vines from which depended grape clusters as tall as a man. So Jesus is most likely, uh, at the very least, referring people's imagination to these, this great vine. And as we think about this text, there's so many places where we can go, but today... I think it is so important for us to examine the fruit that we are producing. And you'll notice that in this image, we could spend a lot of time talking about this idea of pruning. Because for us, we always think about, well, you prune the stuff that doesn't give fruit. But you also prune the, the, the shoots that do give fruit. So that you get more fruit. And it's true with apples as much as it is with grapes. Many of you probably know, or maybe know, that I spent some time working in the wine industry. And as I got to spend time in that industry, I got to spend some time in the vineyards and learning from winemakers and learning about this whole process. Now, I think one thing that we can say from the text in John 15 is that the goal that Jesus is after the mission or the vision that Jesus has of this remaining in him is not simply so that we can be, you know, sit there and do nothing. The goal is to produce fruit, to produce good fruit. So when you spend some time in vineyards, you learn that the fruit is the goal and a good vineyard or a good vine produces good fruit. Here's a shocker for you. You can't make world-class wine from crappy grapes, right? Now you go out and spend some time in wine country and you will learn that if as a farmer you can become known for your vineyard producing great fruit, you can name your price. There are vineyard owners who have the right of refusal. In other words, uh, if you're a winemaker and you come to me and say, as the as the vineyard owner, I want to buy your fruit. I will say, well, I'll sell you my fruit and you can make wine from it, but I get to taste it before you put my vineyard name on it. Because if you take my beautiful grapes and make crappy wine, I don't want you to, I don't want people to know it came from me. 
Now, if you take my beautiful grapes and you make beautiful wine, then you can put my vineyard name on it. The goal is good fruit. So what produces good fruit? A good vine, but also as if you get into this world, you learn very quickly that it's not just the vine. It's all about the culture that surrounds it. And, and the, the fancy wine word for that is terroir. And terroir includes soil, environment, the slope of the land that you're on, direction that it faces, altitude, what you grow as a cover crop, all of these different things. And if you look at that, you could say that's the culture that surrounds us. So brothers and sisters, as we think about mission and vision, we also have to think about what is the culture that we are building around us because that's going to influence the fruit that we produce. If our culture is obsessed with growth over substance, if our culture is obsessed with pointing out the other and everyone else's faults rather than a culture of repentance and recognizing our own sin, all of these pieces then become part of the terroir and influence the fruit that is produced. So as we think about who it is that we are, we have to pay attention to those things. And part of that paying attention is going back to that text in Acts and recognizing and heeding the warning of the apostle when he said, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. In other words, repent. You'll notice a consistent theme here. When we go to the beginning of the Gospels, when Jesus starts his ministry in the Gospel of Mark, the very first announcement of his ministry that comes out of his mouth is what? Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Brothers and sisters, if we are to produce the kind of fruit that Jesus is talking about in John 15, then we have to pay attention to our culture. And we have to repent of and renounce those pieces that are inhibiting or poisoning our fruit. And so when we look at this, the events of Wednesday, and we see this riot, this insurrection that happened in Washington, D.C., and we see people and know that people were erecting crosses and carrying the Christian flag and um, blasting Christian music and shouting Jesus saves and all of this, we must renounce it because that is not of the kingdom of God. That's Christian nationalism. It has nothing to do with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if we don't, then we only have ourselves to blame when we find ourselves as the branches that have been cut off and thrown away. I recognize that this is, these are hard words and it's hard to hear. But brothers and sisters, the gospel of Jesus Christ is not to be reduced to such a thing. And you better believe that the world sees and they're waiting to hear what we have to say about this behavior. 
And if there was ever an example of silence is complicity, that is it. And you can take or leave what I say. I would ask that you go before God and allow the Spirit to speak to you. But the fruit that's produced is the proof of whether or not we're remaining in Jesus. And so, Riverside, as you look forward and as we uh, get into what it is that the new mission statement is and how we understand and, and explain that, we have to ask these questions. What captivates our imagination? What is our motivating story? And I think that as we sang earlier, it must be Jesus. And so as we consider our mission of life together, our vision and our motivating story is Jesus. Hear again the words that we sang. And may they be a reminder and a benediction to you as you go into this week and as you consider where it is that, that you need to be pruned, where, as you consider what it means to remain in Jesus, to be connected to the vine. Be thou my vision, O Lord, of my heart. Not be all else to me, save that thou art. Thou my best thought by day or by night, Waking or sleeping, thy presence, my light. Be thou my wisdom, and thou my true word. I ever with thee, and thou with me, Lord. Thou my great father, and I thy true child. Thou in me dwelling, and I with thee one. Riches I heed not, nor vain empty praise. Thou mine inheritance. Now and always. Thou and thou only first in my heart. High King of Heaven. My treasure thou art.